Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We cover the problematic implications of SESTA, the latest proposed internet regulations in the U.S. Plus, some PR trouble for CBS's Showtime after it's discovered that some cryptocurrency mining software has been embedded in their webpage. We've got the details. And Dan gets just a little bit excited as we discuss why tape-powered backups are still important for many large organizations. Plus, we've got your feedback of Rockin' Roundup and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap. Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 339 for October 5th, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is that BSD badass we know and love. It's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Yes, definitely a badass. That's me. Oh, yes. Uh, how are you doing this week? Anything new for us? I am good. Um, I think I told you that I'd been down to the office and that I'd, I'd fetch some new gear. Oh. Well, over the weekend, that new gear, I'm just going to show you here, um, sort of made it onto the desktop. So um, immediately to my right, on the right end of the desk, I had my laptop. And that just sits there. And that's what feeds these two monitors that are to the left of that so what I have is I have uh, one horizontal um, monitor and one vertical monitor. The vertical monitor is not yet powered up, but these are the uh, the Dell. I have the details here. These these are the the Dell UltraSharp U3415W screens. They're slightly curved. When you're looking at it straight on, you can't really tell it's curved, but. When you look at this horizontal monitor, you can definitely tell that oh, it's yeah, curved. Oh, certainly. And uh, so there, there's a monitor stand in behind that's holding both of these two monitors up. And when the uh, DPI in, DPI out cable arrives, I'll daisy chain this one off that one. And um, it won't be this MacBook that runs it. This is an old MacBook Pro, but it'll be another laptop, which is over here to my left, which I'm using for... Um, uh, Skype at the moment, which which you can't see. Um, that one will be used over here generally. Th- this one only goes up there during the show. Uh, normally, this this other one is over there. But actually, I have a third laptop, and this is actually the work laptop. Wow! Look at you. You are well provisioned at home. And this is the one that that is normally on that monitor stand over there, or laptop stand. Oh yeah, excellent. Do you have to? Do you have like a a, a hub uh, or dock type thing of any sort, or do you just have various cables you got to plug no, in when you it, switch it, them? No, it's a it's a keyboard cable, a power cable, and a power cable and a video cable. That's all all that's over here. And the, there's sometimes two different video uh, power cables depending on which laptop is in there. The, uh, there. There's one for the Air, and then there's one for the Pro. And okay. they're, they're d- different because th- this one's 2000. I don't know what year this is, but this is easily f- six years old. Hey, and this, it's, this uh, is the one that the motherboard. Sorry, yes, this is the one that the main board was taken out of and sent off to California to get a new video chip soldered into it. 
Right, yeah. yeah. B- brought so, back from uh, the dead. Brought back from the dead. Excellent. Well, that's a little inside view into the setup you've got uh, Got at home. I like it. Uh, it seems like a great little office you've got. It, it, it is it is wonderful. And the only downside is now that I've got these monitors, it's harder for me to see the backyard that's straight in front of me. Uh, yeah. The window is right there. And in the winter, it's absolutely gorgeous. In the summer, it's just this big tree. But in the winter, there's all this snow. You can see out about four or five properties. And one of the most amazing things I ever saw was this fox running along. Oh, that sounds marvelous. It, it wow. went out to the next street. It turns right. It goes up a, a block and then turns left again. And there's woodlands you're just, in there. You're just watching them run to, run to the woods. I'm watching the foxes. That is adorable. Uh, okay, well, with that happy memory, I suppose it's time to get to the, the unhappy news that generally constitutes our show. Um, yes. First up, we've got some we've got some problems, some warnings from the Electronic Frontier Foundation about the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, also known as SESTA. Yes. Now, it, it, it sounds well-intentioned, but as with a lot of laws, there are unintended consequences. Right. And... Big companies such as Google and Facebook and think of other big companies will be able to comply with this. But normal startups that are just getting started, which all of these big companies were at one time, right? Yeah, it'll be absolutely horrible. And it also removes, I think it was called a common carrier or referred to as a common carrier, it also makes companies responsible for what's on their websites when it's posted by a third party. Oh, okay, I see. So, like, you're so you're responsible for the content of yes. com- comments or other things. Mm-hmm. That, wow. So, it, if I have a discussion board on my blog post and someone posts something offensive in there, and I don't happen to notice it and delete it, I then become responsible for the content of that, and I can be prosecuted. Whereas at the moment, it's the original party who posted it that is responsible, and that is the way it should be. We, you can't have, you can't have a decent discussion when the provider of the platform is, is responsible for censoring it, and that's what this is. This, this is talking about censoring. Uh, it's not freedom of speech because. It's in order for it to become a freedom of speech issue, it's the government that has to get involved in the censoring. But this is just offloading the censoring to the platform provider. So let, let's jump into this. So uh, there is a. Th- this is from September twenty second. There was a shocking moment in this week's Senate Commerce Committee hearing on the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act (SESTA). Now, oftentimes. A piece of legislation is given a flashy name, and that's their intent, but that may not be the consequences of what they're trying to do. They're, they're trying to deal with this one thing, but it has wide-reaching effects, and it's not going to achieve their goal, I don't think. Professor Eric Goldman had just pointed out that members of Congress should consider how the bill might affect hundreds of small st- Internet startups, not just giant companies like Google and Facebook. Will every startup have the resources to police its users' activity with the level of scrutiny that the new law would demand of them? Quote, there's a large number of smaller players who don't have the same kind of infrastructure. And for them, they will have to make the choice. Can I afford to do the work that you're hoping they will do? So 
Goldman was right. The greatest innovations in internet services don't come from Google and Facebook. They come from small, fast-moving startups. SESTA would necessitate a huge investment in staff to filters user to filter users' activity as a company's user base grows, something that most startups in their early stages simply can't afford. That would severely hamper anyone's ability to launch a competitor to the big internet players, giving users a lot less choice. Uh, in economics terms, this is known as a barrier to entry. Um, however, Senator Richard Blumenthal's stunning response is, quote, I believe that those outliers, outliers, and they are outliers, will be successfully prosecuted civilly and criminally under this law. So he's acknowledging that it's going to be a problem, and if they don't do it, we're going to wow. prosecute them. Yeah, okay. They are so going he's full not, bore here. Yeah, he, he's not saying, oh yeah, it will be a problem. He's not acknowledging that side. He's just said, doesn't matter. So basically, there's 30 co-sponsors of this. And one of the loudest, he's one of 30 co-sponsors and one of the loudest champions of SESTA, a bill that would threaten online speech by forcing web platforms to police their members' messages more stringently than ever before. Normally, SESTA's proponents vastly underestimate the impact the bill would have on online communities. But in that unusual moment of candor, Senator Blumenthal seemed to lay bare his opinions about internet startups. He thinks of them as unimportant outliers and prefer that the new law put them out of business. Ouch. Mm -hmm. So we're reading from an EFF uh, posting here. Make that clear. Yes. That, that's who's commenting upon this. Most of SESTA's supporters suggest that it would be easy for web platforms of all sizes to implement, implement automated filtering technologies they can trust to separate legitimate voices from criminal ones. But it's impossible to do that with any near 100% accuracy. Yeah, boy, have they, have, the they tried, have they tried that? Because, that That doesn't exist now. Yeah, and right. big minds have tried to do that, and it's virtually impossible to get it perfect you always miss something yep and it's the missing part that you'll be prosecuted over given the extreme penalties for under filtering platforms would err in the opposite direction removing legitimate voices from the internet as eff directors eff executive director cindy cohen put it again and again when platforms clamp down on their user speech marginalized voices are the first to disappear and they go on here. The sad irony of SESTA is while its supporters claim it will fight sex trafficking, trafficking victims are likely to be among the first people it would silence. And that silence could be deadly. Congress should think long and hard before passing a bill that would incentivize web platforms to silence those victims. Now, there's a couple of other um, links from within this article that, that I want to go over. One of them is Section 320. 320 is very important. So this is uh, a blog post from the night, uh, sorry, excuse me, September 18th. And what they're talking about is that Professor Eric Goldman is now testifying the importance of Section 320. SESTA would, SESTA would reinstate the modern dilemma that Section 230 eliminated. Did I, did I say 320 before? It's 230. Because of Section 230, online services today voluntarily take steps to suppress socially harmful material, 
bracket, including false malicious content, sexual material, and other lawful but unwanted content, close bracket, without fearing liability for whatever they miss. Post-SESTA, some services will conclude that they cannot achieve this high level of accuracy or that moderation procedures would make it impossible to serve their community. In those cases, the services will reduce or eliminate their current moderation efforts. So basically what he's saying is that 320 is, sorry, 230 is that section that says, hey, listen, we're hosting this content. We didn't post it there. Our users posted it there. They're the ones that are liable for it under section 230, not the platform provider. So basically, if you post an extremely horrible message on YouTube, under current law, you're responsible for that, not YouTube. Now, what happens on YouTube? Someone sees it, someone complains about it, YouTube looks at it, it gets removed. That's how it works. Yeah. That's not how it wor- would work under SESTA. Proponents of SESTA have tried to get around this dilemma by overstating the effectiveness of automated content filtering. It's not perfect. In doing so, they really miss the point of filtering technologies. Automated filters can be very useful as an aid to human review, but they're not appropriate as a final arbiters arbiters of free expression online. Over-reliance on them will almost certainly result in silencing marginalized voices, including those of trafficking victims themselves. So, yeah, I've I've worked somewhere where there's a lot of user-posted content and there's a lot of uh, review of that content, and you you take it seriously. This would totally change that situation. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and they're right. Like, you can't that's a huge cost even like are they are you going to be able to buy this automated filtering how much does that cost are you mm-hmm. expecting these startups to be able to just build this secondary product that you know is it yep. isn't actually what they're trying to build uh it does it seems pr- pretty unrealistic and draconian <clears throat> for especially yep. i mean like admirable goals maybe but the implementation boy uh, imagine reviewing every single ebay listing every single uh Every single thing for sale on Amazon. Yeah, you think there'd be a lot of uh, you know business opposition to this, just because like it it really would change mm-hmm. the nature of interacting on the internet. It changes like how you can scale, how you can market yourself. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, one last quote. This one is from an August second uh, article from EFF. And what it says is it talks about Section 230 contains a Good Samaritan provision that protects intermediaries when they take provisions to filter or block certain types of content. This section ensures that intermediaries are not punished for mistakes that might make in removing or failing to remove user-generated content. In other words, a service blocking some content does not make it liable for what it didn't block. That's what... 230 says now. SESTA would compromise the Good Samaritan provision by imposing federal criminal liability. That's a big phrase on anyone who merely knows that sex trafficking advertisements are on their platform. Platforms would thus be discouraged from reviewing the content posted by their users, canceling out the incentive to review, filter, and remove provided by the Good Samaritan provision. So basically, 
if you make a mistake in your filtering, you're liable. If you don't do any filtering at all, you're not. That is a funny little section there. Yeah, boy. It it sounds ridiculous. It does. Mm, it, it might be that it is. I, I mean, it, it's the case now that whoever posts is responsible for the content. Right. And all the websites make good effort steps in order to remove objectable right objectionable for, for most, material for most non-objectionable sites it's in their interest to do so right like they, they don't yeah. they don't want those on their site any more than we do and, and it's important to note that what is acceptable on a website varies from website to website right yeah that's a very good Some point people, yeah okay so this applies seems to apply the same standard to all websites universally yeah despite you know there's diverse communities that have different expectations i do not see i do not understand how existing laws cannot deal with this i always think about that they're introducing a new law how is it existing laws are not capable of dealing with this sex trafficking is already illegal how does this what does this do that you can't do under existing laws no, I agree. I mean, I think we see this sort of over... This pattern is common with the various overreaches where yes. know, they get concerned. Obviously, you know, there there's some motivations here to, to try to, to fight crime, to fight things mm-hmm. we don't want in our society. Um, but we get so focused on, like, well, how, how much can we drill down? How yep. can we catch 100% of this? How do we... Uh, and forget to take into effect, like, what, what liberties and, and freedoms are we stepping on? Uh, what constraints that maybe you know, are too Mm -hmm. much? Are we adding, yes, we want to fight crime, but we also want to have a free and vibrant society. You you can implement, if you implement a good solution, it doesn't have to be perfect. A good solution is better than no solution at all. And something that gets you 80, 90% of the way there is pretty good. Yep. Yep. And maybe that's the best we can do. I mean, that's, that's kind of the world we live in, right? Like nothing, nothing's perfect. We're human. Uh, that's just what so, happens. If, if you have a website and you allow third parties to post to it, this is going to affect you and it'll affect you big. You will be subject to federal criminal liability. That's a big word. Yeah, watch out. Watch out. Okay, well... Now that you're all kind of scared, shaking in your boots, uh, let's move on to a happier topic, which is our first sponsor today, our friends over at Ting. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. There you will find a smarter way to do mobile. If you haven't heard of Ting, one thing you need to know, and this is this is what's going to just get you right, right from the start, the average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month. Yeah, that sounds un- that sounds unbelievable. Here's how that magic works. You can find out for yourself. Head on over to their rates page. Uh, that'll help explain. To get started, each line at Ting, it's just $6 a month. $6. You want cell phone service? $6. Boom. Done. That's it. Your line is activated. You're online. You can bring your own device or go to their shop and, and buy one there. There's tons of options. Okay, so once you've got your line, then you just pay for what you use. You don't have to pick a plan. You don't have to sign a contract or a two-year agreement. You just use your phone, you know, sign up, 
go to their website. They've got a super incredible, easy dashboard to use. They have mobile apps. They've got real human customer support. All the avenues you need to get started. It's super easy. They really couldn't be easier. Go sign up. Activate your line. $6 a month. And then pay for what you use. If you don't use any minutes, guess what? $0 a month. If you don't use any text messages, $0 a month. Then it's pretty much just how much data are you using. Maybe you use a gig. Your total bill, minus taxes and fees that Ting really just can't do anything about, would be $22 a month. If you have a lot of Wi-Fi, like like I'm lucky enough to, there's Wi-Fi here at the studio. I have Wi-Fi at work. I have Wi-Fi at home. There's Wi-Fi on buses these days and trains and all kinds of things. You can really save a ton of money with Ting. That's that's uh, that's what makes them so great. What also makes them great is they have all the amenities you've come to expect. They have three-way calling. They have tethering. Oh, man, boy, do they have tethering. It's just data on Ting, right? So if you want to tether and you want to use a bunch of data, do it. Pay for what you use. If you don't, pay for what you use. That's kind of the, you know, that's that's what ties the Ting system together. You pay for what you use. It's simple. It's transparent. There's no gimmicks. You're not trying to like secretly subsidize the cost of your super expensive phone by paying it more in your, your average monthly bill. No. Go to the Ting store. Uh, when you go to techstep.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit. So probably that will pay for more than your first month of service. Or if you need to buy a new phone, they've got all the latest and greatest phones over in the, in the shop, right? So head on over there. You can use that service credit on most of them. And right now they've got a, they've got a promotion. Add a line, get two gigs from, from October 2nd to October 22nd. Add a line get two gigs of data. So that's pretty That's pretty great. Uh, see the details? Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. That lets Ting know you appreciate them sponsoring us here at the TechSnap program, and it'll get you started on mobile. That makes sense and will probably save you some money. So thanks to Ting. Okay, with that out of the way, we can move on to our next story today. This one, oh boy, I can see the smirk in your eye already, Dan. Companies are looking mm-hmm. to an old mm-hmm. technology to protect <coughs> against new threats. Any guesses what that technology might be? I have one. Well, when I first read it, I thought it was ZFS. I thought that, that that's what they were going to say. Yeah. And the threat model there I was thinking of is uh, someone's come in and, and scrambled all your data by encrypting it. Now, with ZFS, if you've taken a snapshot, snapshots are read-only by design. They can't encrypt that. They might take a copy of it and encrypt it, but they can't encrypt the snapshot itself. So the the solution there is you get caught by ransomware, you get rid of the data, uh, sorry, you get rid of the, the, the malware, then you fall back to a snapshot. And if you find out you've still got the malware, you can still jump back to the snapshot. But that's not what what we're talking about. Right. A good a good point uh, and great reason to use ZFS, mm-hmm. but there's mm-hmm. other things mm-hmm. that work mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. This is about tape. And I, I had a conversation, I think, over the weekend that, about tape and people calling it, you know, old school and old tech and stuff like that. Spinning rust is good enough, they say. And I disagree. Uh, I, I think that Proper backups not only need to be somewhere else, they need to be offline. And that's what tape does. Uh, I took a tape to my secure off-site location just yesterday. Um, and that was my full backup 
for whatever month it was for the first first uh, Sunday in October. So, on to this. The headline says, Companies look to an old technology to protect against new threats. Companies are once again storing data on tape, just in case, and so should you. To stay up to date in the battle against hackers, some companies are turning to a 1950s technology. That's not surprising. That's 60, nearly 70 years old. Yeah. Storing data on tape seems impossibly inconvenient in an age of easy access cloud computing. But that is the big security advantage of this vintage technology, since hackers have no way to get at the information. That's the offline. <coughs> pardon. That's the offline bit. If it's offline, they can't get to it. If it's in a snapshot, read only, they can't get to it. They might be able to do a ZFS delete snapshot, but they need root for that. Uh, yeah. So if you ZFS send received your snapshot somewhere else, it's offline. If it is offline. But the federal government, financial services firms, health insurers, and other regulated industries still keep tape as a backup to digital records. They are wise. That's right. Companies started using digital tape as far back as the 1950s when it was largely the only choice available for reliable large-scale data storage. Companies sent full reels to an on-site library for storage until needed. And this is your typical uh, old computer type thing. They have these nine-track tapes that are sitting up there. There's two of them, and they're spooling back and forth and stuff like that. And uh, I remember in the late 70s, I had a nine-track tape, and I really? still have it. It's out there in the living room. Awesome. And that's what I used to dump my programs onto, mm-hmm. and then I'd give it to the operator, and he'd mount it up. I think it was an IBM 360 hosted at the University of Ottawa. I was in their high school computing club or something like that. But yeah, paper tape, not that's paper awesome. tape. Punch cards, it dumped it onto the tape, and it, it, was, it was interesting. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. So, as computers got slimmer and more powerful, so did tape, moving from reels to compact cartridges to achieve much more data, blah, blah, blah. What I find, <clears throat> pardon me, what I find very interesting here is annual shipments of magnetic tape storage using LTO. We're only talking about LTO here, linear tape open, an open standard technology for data storage in compressed gigabytes. So, in... They say that tape is dying, but let's say back in, uh, let's do 07. So 2007, there was 16.1 billion gigabytes of tape sold. Go forward, say, seven years to 2014, that's jumped up by nearly, uh, by more than threefold to 64. Five billion. Wow. And 26, 2016, for which they had the latest figures, 96 billion gigabytes of tape were sold. That's a lot of storage. People are serious about storage. I'd like to know what this relates to in terms of disk space storage for disks disk that is sold. You that mean would like be how many equivalent thing. disks at? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But 96 billion. Billion gigabytes. Woo-hoo. That's a lot. That's a lot. It's of only data. A th- it's a it, 
so uh, I can't even do the math to figure out what that is in, in terabytes. It'd be about point nine hundred thousand terabytes, I think. Maybe someone someone do the math. So. Some security experts and tape users argue that the median has big advantages over other forms of storage, including a higher reliability rate than hard drives and a lifespan in excess of 30 years. Now, people are going to come back and say, what tape drive is going to last 30 years? Well, they can. Maybe. The total cost of ownership per terabyte is the lowest of any storage medium. Top-of-the-line tapes can hold up to 15 terabytes. Mine can only hold one terabyte. I'm on LTO4. Oh, okay. And can, and can be archived in third-party locations at a fraction of the cost of cheap cloud storage. Tape doesn't require much. Decent humidity, not, not a lot of variation in temperature, and... It just sits there just sits forever. There, right. And that's the thing. is like mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, magnetic tape is a technology we've been using for a mm-hmm. long time. So we kind of understand mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. a better handle of its lifetime, how to store it, what it needs. Yep. And spinning discs when they don't spin, they don't like that. Yeah, right. I mean, then you have like uh, a me- mechanical part that's sitting there mm-hmm. unused, not mm-hmm. getting maintained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm. Uh, 96 trillion gigabytes is 96 million terabytes. 96 million terabytes. Yep. So 96 million terabytes, that's a lot of petabytes. Yeah, that is that is a lot. Ni- 96 million terabytes, so that would be 960,000 petabytes. That's a lot. A lot that's of data. Lot of that data. is for sure. Yeah. It's a lot of data. I don't have that much data, but I can oh, say. I don't have that much data. <laughs> I don't have any world does, near. And we keep making yeah. more of it. Um, yes, much more storage. So PDP group, that's a lovely name. I like that name, PDP group. Uh, people should look back if they don't know at what PDP 11s and PDP 8s were. I remember working on them. That's where I first learned assembly language, I think. A provider of insurance policies for auto dealerships uses tape as its primary backup. Tape is our main form of backup and recovery, says computer operations and network manager Rick Hazley. We remain highly confident, he didn't say highly, but I put that in there, that tape will continue to be the most reliable and cost-effective means of protecting our company data. The company says that tapes are encrypted for security purposes, but can be easily retrieved and the data easily restored when required. I admit, I do not encrypt my data on tape. Most people are looking for convenience, and the cloud is convenient, he says. This is Mark Langer, uh, founder and president of Recovery Point Systems, who probably has a biased point of view here because that's the business he's in. Tape isn't inefficient or ineffective, but it can be inconvenient. Good security is almost always inconvenient. Yeah, that is, uh, amen, Uh, that's certainly, I mean, not all the time, uh, but often. I don't mind SSHing into a box and having to do two-factor authentication. No, I don't either. That that gets it's a little inconvenient, but SSH with a uh, <clears throat> SSH with a public key is fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I I think it's so, more the perception. You know, as you get more secure, usually because of the the way you know the way the history of the world. Uh, you know, you start from a less secure place and get more secure. Mm-hmm. So it always seems like you're increasing the onus and the burden. And for people who don't get the importance of security, it's just more roadblocks. I, I have a feeling that 
people who don't like tape have had a bad experience with tape. That's a bit like people who have a bad experience with a brand of disk drive and they never recommend it. Yep. But you have the one not, fail and you're like, I'm not going to buy that ever again. That, that doesn't scale. No, it doesn't. So, yeah. Tape is good. Embrace it. Embrace the tape. I bet you we're going to get some feedback. This will be the most popular feedback item next show. I'm yeah. sure. Well, and I think for I think for a lot of people, you know, for their for their backups, they're already doing. Maybe they do test restores as as one should. Uh, but for the large part, you know, you kind of you make backups, you put them there. Uh, hopefully, you don't actually end up needing them. And so, the downsides of tape don't really matter in a lot of cases for this because you could just you could just write it out um the the systems exist if you just invest in the Mm -hmm. hardware one time then you have a whole bunch of dirt cheap storage that you can you know you really have no excuse not to use it my goal is to have three years of backups that's a that's a good that's a good that seems like a good time frame and I have backups that are much older than that because I moved away from using those tapes, but I still have those tapes and I still have the the tape library. And really what I should do is go back to one of these tapes that's five or ten years old and do a restore on it and see how it works. Um, just to say, hey, it worked. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Still good. Still good. Excellent. Look at this horrible code I wrote 10 years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, do you have any tips to go along with this article or anything that's helped you or things you had to figure out in uh, in your own tape experience? Um, what I always do daily is copy the configuration files for my tape backup to two or three other locations. So I've got the... The configuration files here for my backup system. They're also uh, on another system at home, and they're on two or three other systems out there on the internet. And the reason I do that is because when everything here dies, touch wood, I've got my backup tapes, but I can't get anything off them because I don't have my configuration files. The last thing you want to be doing is scrambling for your configuration files. So if you've got them somewhere else, put, you know, it's much easier when the shit hits the fan to actually get the data back. And, and my goal is is to always restore from disk if I have to. If I have to restore, I'll restore from disk. Um, but the biggest issue ever would be a complete and total failure of everything here. I have tapes somewhere else I can use them. Yeah, okay. I like that. That seems that, that seems like a good way to do it. Anything else you want to add about the article? Uh, no. Um, I, I, I do sort of think it's written from uh, an invested point of view in terms of these are people that use tape and they yeah. recommend tape. So, of course, they do. But so do I and so do I. Yeah, but, right. yeah. and it, might, it might not be right for every backup storage if you just have no. a small amount of stuff. Something like tar snap or just rolling your own thing might work oh, yeah. just fine. Yeah, tar, tar snap. Use TarSnap. It's a great and cheap way to put data out there because you only pay for the unique data. You don't pay for duplicated data. So if you're backing up the same thing all the time, you can go back 10 or 15 years. It's not going to cost you anything more because it's all the same data. Exactly. 
I do think it did a good job of highlighting, like, right, if you, you know, if you're one of those startups we were talking about in the previous story, yeah, okay, you probably don't need tape. But if you're already at the enterprise level, I think a lot of people don't realize that tape is definitely still used. Like, what else are you going to do? All right, we want to make backups of the production database. It's a bunch of data. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tape is a great thing to do. So Mm -hmm. something, Mm -hmm. something people can consider. And... If they take their data seriously, they probably take their servers pretty seriously, too. Uh, And for them, they should head on over to IX Systems. That's our next sponsor today, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There, you will find the definitive guide to buying hardware for open source software. Turns out it works fine with proprietary software, too, but uh, why would you be running that now? IX Systems is a really unique hardware vendor because... I mean, one, they've been in the industry a long time. They've been here through multiple dot-com bubbles and bursts, and they they came up with the internet. They understand it. They know what you need in servers, and they understand data. Not only that, but they've got a super talented team of hardware and sales engineers who are just ready and willing to help make sure that whatever project you're working on, be that a new startup, uh, you know, supporting an open source project, or building a better sand for your enterprise, it doesn't matter. Whatever the scale, IX has the people and the talent and the experience to make sure it happens right the first time. Examples of this is just like their incredible white glove service. They will they will handle from the from the moment you call them. And I do recommend like just give them a call. They have a great website. You can order stuff on it. No problem. Just like any other vendor. But you can also call them and like talk to a real human who knows what they're talking about, can help you, is excited to learn about what you're working on, and provide you the best advice they can to get the system that will work for you. So maybe you just need, you, you're, you're convinced now by Dan that you got to get your backups in order. Free NES Mini. Just free NES Mini. Go check it out. You can buy it right from iHex. You can go on to Amazon Prime if you're a Prime member and get it on there. It's a great system. comes with free NES. It has... It's super easy, hot swap bays, great hardware, super reliable. You put it in your garage or attic or office, wherever wherever it fits, it'll just run. You won't have to worry about it. It has an easy-to-use graphical interface. It's perfect for home offices, small business offices. Maybe you have something a little larger. You, you know, you got some, you got some data center, you're co-located, you want a, a good NAS to take care of that. Take a look at the TrueNAS. There's a lot to like there. It's sort of the uh, you know the big boy brother of FreeNAS, or maybe uh, maybe you're talking you know you're talking real enterprise grade for that. Nothing beats the True Rack. You can see more about what IX is up to. They've got a great blog. They've got a great social media presence. They go to all the conferences. That's the other part about them. Not only do they have incredible hardware powered by amazing Intel processors, but they're there talking about it. You can actually see them. They're real people. Uh, they've just on their blog now. They got the Ohio Linux Fest 2017 recap, EuroBSDCon 27 reflection. It really shows that like they are out there. They are here. They're a part of the OpenCFS community. They're part of the open source communities. They care about this stuff. They run it. They know how to make it work. I, and it, it really shows throughout the whole thing. You talk to a real engineer. They give you great advice. You get a custom configured system. They burn in the hard drives. They install, configure whatever you need. It gets shipped to the data center or wherever you want it, ready to go, ready to be plugged in, racked up, online, in the fleet. It couldn't be simpler or easier. And that's that's just that's what sets IX apart. So if you're serious, you don't want to just buy you know whatever elf, off-the-shelf thing with no reliability or warranty or or anyone to talk to if it, if it were to break you can do that but if you want to if you want to get things right do it right the first time go with ix systems and head on over to ixsystems.com 
slash TechSnap. And with that, it's time for the final topic in today's main segment. A little bit embarrassing, maybe, for our friends over at CBS. Mm. They were caught mining crypto coins? Is that right, mm-hmm. Dan? Mm-hmm. No, not quite. The headline is misleading. So there was JavaScript being served up along with CBS's Showtime content. But as we go on in the story, you, you'll see that it doesn't really look like CV, CBS. I almost said CVS, two different companies. That's right. The websites of U.S. Telegiant, by the way, this is the register in the U.K. That's why they're referring to it as that. Uh, U.S. Telegiant, CBS's Showtime, contained JavaScript that secretly commandeered viewers' web browsers over the weekend to mine cryptocurrency. So it only happened over the weekend. So it's almost like something happened Friday night. No one really noticed until Monday. That's what it sounds like. But the flagship, Showtime.com, and its instant access, ShowtimeAnytime.com sibling, silently pulled in code that caused browsers to blow spare processor time calculating new Monero coins. So this is like a Bitcoin new thing, a privacy-focused alternative to the ever-popular Bitcoin. The hidden software typically consumed as much as 60% of CPU capacity on computers visiting the sites. The scripts were written by CodeHive, a legit outfit that provides JavaScript to website owners. Webmasters add the code to their pages so that they can earn slivers of cash from each visitor as an alternative to selling adverts to generate revenue. Interesting. Over time, yeah, it is. I used to run ads, and then for some strange reason, my Google Ads account got canceled. Never found out why. Over time, money mined by the CodeHive hosted scripts adds up and is transferred from CoinHive to the site's administrators. One Monero coin, one XMR, is worth about $92 right now. That's probably U.S. However, it's extremely unlikely that a large corporation like CBS would smuggle such a piece of mining code into its dot-coms, especially since it charges subscribers to watch their shows online. Right. And uh, and that suggests that someone hacked the source code to insert the mining JavaScript and make a quick buck. Interesting. So the the JavaScript, which appeared in the sites at the start of the weekend and vanished by Monday, sits in between HTML comment tags that appear to be an insert from web analytics business New Relic. They contacted both Showtime and New Relic today asking for more more detail. Showtime didn't comment, and New Relic told us it had nothing to do with the mystery code. So, (laughs) pardon me. The remainders of that cough. The so they contacted CodeHive and CodeHive did confirm to us register, however, that the email address used to set up the account was a personal personal one and not an official CBS email address, further mm. suggesting malicious activity. Yeah. Now, CoinHive's mining code is sort of well known because last week. A code sharing search engine, the Pirate Bay, admitted it had the coin gathering coin JavaScript on its pages to test the profitability of it in an effort to get rid of ads. But the code was poorly configured. Webman, web admins are allowed to set the hashing rate. 
and resulted in some machines slowing to a crawl, crawl sparking complaints. And there was an outcry, and Pirate Bay said, oh, yeah, sorry, it's there. It's only a test, and we'll get rid of it, and it, it's gone. I see. So CoinHive's pitch is that this script could allow publishers to pull annoying ads from the website, which is something that could become more important as browsers increasingly block ads. Now, I think that there are ethical issues here because you're using someone else's computer. You better get explicit permission for that. Most people have JavaScript enabled and aren't going to know that you're doing that. And theoretically, you are using someone else's computer without their permission. You could argue that it's actually it's using more electricity and more energy out of someone else's bill. Yeah. Well, I guess it, it really makes you wonder, like, what is the uh, implicit agreement or societal contract when you visit a page? Because you're kind of being like, well, I'm trusting you to send me code that gets executed in my browser. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like, would it be more appropriate if they just were like very open about it? Like a, like a thing, you know, they have that stupid cookies warning is it also says like, Hey, also uh, you agree that we're mining cryptocurrency or maybe like a, a switch that's all right, this one you can do the crypto or you can have ads. Cause we certainly have seen in the past ads as well that, you know, will use mm-hmm. a, a ton of resources, slow your browser and computer down, etc. Yes. Yes. So this sounds like someone hacked in, managed to utilize this. I wonder how much money they actually got out of it, out of it though, and whether or not uh, CoinHive is it CoinHive or New Relic? Yeah, it's either CoinHive or, or New Relic. I wonder if they dis disconnected the account. Oh yeah, that would that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, don't do this. Don't put this on your website. Run it on your servers at, at home, sure, but don't run it on other people's servers without their explicit permission. So this isn't something that we should expect to see uh, on, on your blog anytime soon? Uh, no. No. <laughs> okay, good. Well, glad to hear it. Uh, maybe people people are hearing this and like, well, yeah, maybe I do want to run this. Or I'm just kind of a jerk and I want to run this on other people's browsers, but I need somewhere to host that website. Well, I still don't think you should do it. But if you do need somewhere to host a website, that that I can help you with. And that is our final sponsor this evening, our friends over at DigitalOcean. Head on over to DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code, SNAPOcean, all one word, lowercase, SNAPOcean. There you can get started with a brand new VPS in the cloud in under 55 seconds. Not only that, but they've got a ton of features you expect from a modern cloud provider. Things like firewalls built right in, monitoring, totally available, attachable block storage. Yeah, and it's all SSD. Plus, they've got incredible transit, 40 gigabit right to the hypervisors. It's all KVM Linux based. And you get real virtualization. None of that OpenVZ stuff. It's not a container. Want to boot your own kernel with modified modified kernel? That is totally possible. A little bit of work? Totally possible. Or you want super easy things. They've got one-click installations. You want a new WordPress, other type of blog, ghost setup, boom, one-click, done. You've got it running. 
you want to dive in a little bit more, DigitalOcean sets themselves apart with their incredible community. They've got a ton of people, a ton of JB members, a ton of great Linux open source enthusiasts there. They take those community contributions, hire a real editors, and turn them into some of the best documentation on the internet. Seriously, if you're searching for like, hey, how do I set up Nginx as a reverse proxy? Probably like three of the top articles you find, DigitalOcean contributions. That's what makes it so cool. They get it, and it, and it's and sympathetic with them. DigitalOcean wants that to be easy. They want it to be simple because that's what they're great at too. They have an incredibly simple API, which they build everything on, including their incredible dashboard. It's so simple. If you've used some of the big cloud names and you're a little bit frustrated by the, well, let's just say, uh, incidental complexity of some of the UIs and APIs, DigitalOcean is like a breath of fresh air. It's simple. It's to the point. It's easy to use. It has the power that you need without a ton of the bloat. It makes it super simple to get your job done. They've just introduced Spaces, a beautifully simple and scalable object storage service. You can just uh, head on over to DigitalOcean.com, click their, click their little announcement to learn more. Uh, another thing about them that's super, that's super nice is that the pricing. It's just transparent and simple. You don't have to go find a specially made third-party calculator. You don't have to dig through a ton of documentation. Just click on the pricing section on their website and you'll see it. They've got both hourly and monthly. Prices start at just $5 a month. When you use our promo code, SnapOcean, you'll get a $10 credit. So that'll pay for like two months of that $5 droplet. With that, you get 512 MB of RAM, one virtual CPU, which is no slouch, 20 gigs of all SSD disk and a whopping one terabyte of transfer. Seriously, DigitalOcean has some of the best transit and best transfer prices you will see out of any provider. It's awesome. It's one of the things I love about them. I've been playing with Spaces. Ton of fun. You just need to share some files. They've got an easy-to-use UI. You can drag and drop right from your browser if you want to, or it has an S3-compatible API, so you can use a ton of your favorite S3 syncing tools to sync, sync stuff up. They make it super easy to get like sharing links, even links that'll disappear, so you can you know have something in your space. Click, I want to share this and have the link disappear in seven hours. They will generate it for you. You just drop that in the chat or IM or wherever you're doing, and then you know that they will have access to it for a certain amount of time. Makes it super simple. It highlights why DigitalOcean is an incredible cloud hosting provider. So go check them out. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. That lets them know you appreciate them sponsoring us and gets you started with a hey $10 discount. Thank you very much to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, that's it for the main segment. Uh, feedback coming right up. Now it's time for the feedback, that time in the show where we get to hear from you, our wonderful audience. We've got uh, two pieces of feedback today, both from Robert Liu. First up, a comment about some funny sounds heard throughout the show. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, th- this will be last episode, I believe, uh, 330, 338. Um, Robert writes, mm-hmm. what's going on with the, let's say, flatulent sounds happening <clears throat> throughout the show? <laughs> I'm sure it's not actual farts, but it is distracting. Keep up the great show. Sorry about that, Robert. You know, I'm actually really not quite sure what happened. I haven't been able to reproduce it. It wasn't clear that it was happening during the show, so I'm not I'm not really sure where those came from. Agreed that it could definitely be distracting. For now, yeah. I'm hoping that it's a one off. Yeah, I, I never heard it. Yeah, it was it was strange. Yeah. And it's not happening this show. No, I haven't and I haven't heard it. We anything. really don't know where it was coming from. 
Sorry about that. We hope it was at least amusing. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that that one time annoyance is balanced out by being amusing. And uh, if we if we hear it again, we'll definitely be on be on the lookout and make sure we you know resolve whatever is whatever the underlying problem is. So thank you all for your patience. Okay, so moving on to the second piece of feedback. Here's a question about credit scores and opening new accounts. So Robert writes that. I was recently looking into getting internet through Cox Communications and found out that they check your credit score in order to get an account with them. What do you guys think about this? Isn't it a little intrusive? Here's the official mention about any links to their FAQ page. They offer the option to opt out by physically going to a local store, but the price offers are not as good as compared to when you comply and when you apply online. Thanks for your opinion, Robert. Okay, I'll let you go first there, Mr. Dan. What do you think? Uh, I'm not surprised. I remember when I went and got a uh, new cell phone contract. I was bringing my own cell phone, but they still wanted to run a credit check. And I said, oh, that's that's good. Okay, here's your account. Mm -hmm. Uh, It probably doesn't happen with pay-as-you-go systems, like pay-as-you-go accounts. But anytime you're running up a bill, they tend to want to see your credit history. Yeah, definitely. They only do this with new customers. Like if you were transferring, say, say like you moved, they wouldn't they wouldn't do do a credit check then if you'd been with them for a while. Yeah, right. Or maybe but, even if you had been with them in the past and you know hadn't been mm-hmm. with them for a while. I've had that. Mm-hmm. I've also seen mm-hmm. setups where you know they'll have a deposit instead. Like if if you want to object mm-hmm. to the credit report, or maybe even if your credit wasn't great, then you would pay a deposit. Mm-hmm. If your credit score was all right, then you would they would waive the deposit. You know, it is, I don't I don't love the credit score system. Obviously, we've seen, there, there were already a lot of problems. We've seen more of the implementation problems. Uh, but there is yes. some amount that's reasonable that like a business does want some some certainty that you won't rip them off or that you will be a, you know, a customer yep. who won't be delinquent on their account. So there's... Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not it's not it's not great. I'm glad that they have an opt out. It's unfortunate that you can't get the same deals. Uh it is definitely a little intrusive and it's not a great system, but I can kind of see both sides. Speaking of uh credit checking facilities, did you notice that Mr. Smith went to Washington this week? No, I did not. Mr. Smith being the now retired or still in place CEO of Equifax. Oh, yes. Uh, and this bit about Mr. Smith goes to Washington is, I think it's an old Cary Grant movie. I, yes, it is. He winds up being elected to office, and it's a wonderful movie. I just wish the Equifax thing has had as great an outcome as that movie did. Yeah, no, that more just confirmed all, all of our all of our worst fears and speculations mm. about the mismanagement and bad security practice going on over at Equifax. I saw one post where he blamed an individual for the breach. For the lack of patching, he blamed an individual wow. in the company. I mean, if it's the like CTO, okay, maybe. But uh, blaming the individual yeah. pra- practitioners is, is never a good move. For the CEO to blame an individual in a company that big, that's really bad. That's really uh, bad. Now, to, to be clear, I haven't heard his actual blaming. So maybe he was asked a very specific question. Who was responsible for patching this and he named someone? Or maybe he said, he was asked, you know, who's responsible? And he said, this guy, he should have patched it. Really, it's a system. And the system exists in order to make sure the software is secure. Yeah, exactly. 
and the system failed, and someone's responsible for that system, and eventually it winds up at the CEO. Yep. Chain of accountability and trust and auditability that, uh, you know, enterprise big companies need to have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, When the Wells Fargo crap all hit the fan, uh, I think they had someone retire from there as well. I'm not surprised. Uh, they'll, anyway, sorry, I've, I've diverged way off the topic. This is a little bit of Dan's own feedback for the show. Yes, yes. <laughs> Excellent. All right, well, I guess that's it for the feedback. Um, if you want to send us feedback, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. You can find a, a nice form to fill out. There's also techsnap.reddit.com, or you can find us both on Twitter. Plenty of ways to get in touch. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. Sad, but true. It's time for the Roundup. We didn't have enough time to make these main segment stories, but we still wanted to bring them to your attention and to our own attention. First up, over at Dine Research's Twitter account, there's some interesting yeah. graphs one week after Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico. Yeah, the, 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 this is sad. And um, I find it interesting that people have to think that internet connectivity is not their main concern right now but communications is very important yeah definitely and a lot of that happens after over the internet but basically uh, this graph is showing upstreams of at&t mobility in puerto rico and upstreams of liberty puerto rico they're both different as numbers and basically there's still some stuff coming through from at&t but from Liberty, Puerto Rico, it's way down there. It looks to be less than 1% of what it used to be. The AT&T looks to be about, oh, maybe 25% of what it used to be. But that's got to be because all the cell phone towers are down. But I, I just cannot imagine the devastation that people are going through in Puerto Rico right now. Um, uh, Kern Seibold, Seibold, uh, the one of the main developers of Bacula, arrived one day after one of the hurricanes and a few days before the next hurricane. And he, he just got out of there a few days ago, but he said it was, it was devastating. That's the only person I know that was on the ground, but yeah, good luck, Puerto Rico. Good luck for Puerto Rico. Horrible. Yeah. Just some more, some more evidence of of how uh, extensive the devastation has been. Okay. So it's the roundup. We must move on. Some news over from the U.S. Securities and Exchange mm-hmm. Commission. They've announced mm-hmm. enforcement mm-hmm. initiatives to combat cyber-based threats and protect retail investors. What's actually going on here? Well, I would have thought that this was a purview of someone like Homeland Security. But rather than outsource all your expertise, it is good to have someone in-house that knows a little bit about this stuff. Now, the Securities and Exchange Commission, basically, let's say that they're in charge of uh, things being bought and sold on the security exchange, so like stocks, for example. Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission today announced two new initiatives that will build on its enforcement division's ongoing efforts to address cyber-based threats and protect retail investors. It's interesting how they're protecting retail investors, but not commercial investors. So I guess commercial investors are on their own. 
The creation of a cyber unit that will focus on targeting cyber-related misconduct and the establishment of a retail strategy, there's that word again, task force that will implement initiatives that directly affect retail investors reflect SEC Chairman Jay Clayton's priorities in these important areas. I imagine that they're just leaving the commercial folks to worry about themselves. But yeah, I guess this is for the day traders. Yeah, I guess so. Kind of interesting. All right. So, well, just let me go over the ma- the main items here. So, yeah. they're going to market manipulation schemes involving f- false information spread through electronic and social media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hacking to obtain material non-public information. I guess by material, they mean relevant. Uh, violations involving distributed ledger technology and initial coin offerings. Hey, look at that. Might not have seen that a couple years ago. Nope. Misconduct perpetrated through the dark web. Well, that's hard to follow. Yeah. And I don't know uh, why the misconduct, where what its origins are, you know, if that's necessarily in, Intrusions into retail brokering accounts. So I guess that that's, you've bought a, you have an account with a third party and you're going through there. So I guess this is to protect consumers. Uh, cyber-related threats to trading platforms and other critical market infrastructure. So I'm guessing the trading platforms are the things that you get an account with and trade online. So, yeah, this is important because I'm. it'd be interesting. to Have we ever heard of a breach of someone that sells stocks and trades recently? Not recently. I'm sure there, there must be. Uh, maybe we can comb the TechSnap archives at some point, but not, not anything that comes to my mind right yeah. now. So maybe they're treating security a little bit more seriously yeah. than, say, someone else we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, interesting news. Um, it certainly is serious stuff. There's a lot of money on the line. So, uh, you know, as as always, security, it, it takes a lot of work and takes procedures and practices and regimen. So it's good to see them. I don't love how many times the word cyber is on this page, but uh, it seems like it's for a good cause. One last thing. Protecting the welfare of the Main Street investor has long been a priority for the commission. By dedicating additional resources and expertise to developing strategies to address misconduct that victimizes retail investors, the division will better protect our most valuable, our most vulnerable market participants. So yeah, we're vulnerable. Remember that. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so uh, now it's time to check in with something we talked about on a previous show. We'd previously mentioned uh, mm-hmm. APFS, the new files mm-hmm. copy on write file system from Apple. Yep. Um, I've I've got that on my iPhone now. I upgraded to iOS 11. Uh, I found it faster. My girlfriend found it faster. Have you upgraded? You know, I don't. Ha- I don't have an iPhone, so uh, I don't. I don't get to play with what? it. Yeah, I don't even have a Mac of any kind. But it also looks like they've started rolling it out now um, to yes. with High Sierra to the to yes. Macs proper. And and we talked about this months ago, it yeah. seems. And the idea of rolling it out to an iPhone makes much more sense than rolling it out to MacBooks first. And the reason being is that if something goes wrong on the Mac on the iPhone, it's isolated. 
they have a lot of protection in here so that one app can't interfere with another app and you're not going to wind up losing everything on your phone. So they're doing all this testing on here in a very controlled environment and working out all the bugs and stuff before they deploy it to OS X. So they're trialing it out on, on tablets and iPhones first. Uh, colleague of mine uh, up, upgraded his MacBook to a PFS and said, don't do it if File Vault is on. Turn File Vault off, then upgrade, then turn File Vault on again. Because he had trouble with that. Maybe they've fixed it, but he wouldn't want to risk it with his real laptop. Yeah, I mean, if you anyway. think about it, it's a quite an undertaking to uh, in-place upgrade file systems. Ah, it's tricky as hell. Yeah. Because you're upgrading everything that you're writing on. Yeah, yeah exactly. I imagine uh, there's like multiple passes of changing the on disk structures, but keeping them consistent. And uh, I know, and, and getting it right on the uh, on the iPhone, they seem to have done that well. Yeah, I was impressed. But there's a lot more variation on you know on on MacBooks, mm-hmm. and they don't tightly so tightly control the hardware. I believe right exactly. now it's just on SSDs, or at least that's what they started. But a longer term, there oh. will be support for hybrid drives. Oh, really? Yeah, at least I've, that's mm-hmm. what I've read. Again, I don't have one, so I'm not I'm not an expert on mm-hmm. this topic. So I didn't go into all the details of the benchmarks. I started looking at them, and my eyes quickly glazed over. Um, but, yeah, it is faster, and it is, it is better. And I'm sure Apple put a lot of work into this based on ZFS. Yeah. But the ZFS didn't quite do what they wanted, so APFS. And to point out, they're replacing HFS+, Plus, which is nearly 20 years old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not a not a great file system for the modern era. So it's nice to see them moving forward. Whether or not APFS becomes open source, available on other systems, or something that you know we can play with mm. in a real way, we'll see. It would be interesting. Yeah, it would be definitely, or even just like some technical articles about the implementation from them would be, I think, very interesting to see. I'm, um, I'm sure that will come. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So you can go check it out over at Malcon Malcontent or Mal Malcon dot net. Uh, Go, go look at the benchmarks and uh, hey, let us know if you have been upgraded and you have any thoughts about performance issues or uh, just APFS in general. Yes, please. So, uh, some exciting news, I'm sure, for you, Mr. Dan. There's been a new Postgres release, Postgres 10. Yes, it was released this morning, but I, I added this to the show notes two days ago. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff coming out in Postgres 10, such as native partitioning, uh, additional parallelism and query execution oh, that good. and and logical replication. Now, not going into a whole bunch of this stuff because databases are a very narrow uh, field and it's not generally interesting, but those of you that are using Postgres will look forward to this, I'm sure, and those of you that aren't using Postgres, well, I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, work on migrating. Yes, yes. Anything in particular that you've been excited for or uh, might use? Um, mostly the parallelism. Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to be able to, to use multiple CPUs. I'm just setting up this new server. Uh, it has two 5-terabyte drives, uh, two maybe 120-gig SSDs, mm-hmm. 
and I think 24 CPUs. Nice, those are, yeah. Those are real cores. And 192 gig of RAM. These are some. That's these are going some to numbers. be a that's huge awesome. RAM disk. Yes. Yeah. A huge RAM disk. That's where I'm going to put all my ta- all my caching. Mm-hmm. All my caching is going to be on SSD. I'm really looking forward to. That. Uh, in that job, I finally wound up packaging Freshports code. Okay. So theoretically, the code for Freshports could be on Freshports. Awesome. That's great. Very cyclical. Someone, yeah, like someone, warn me. Don't break the universe. Do not break the universe. Make Do sure you can still bootstrap yourself yeah. if you needed to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. And and there, read this carefully because there are some backwards incompatible changes. Mm. There's seven of them listed here. One of which is you know drop PG dump support for databases older than 8.0. That anyone running 8.0 should really get off it anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, yeah. So read read the show notes. Read the release notes carefully. And be excited for Postgres 10. Awesome. Okay, well, uh, we have one more story in today's roundup. This one's kind of exciting. Microsoft and Facebook just laid a 160 terabit per second cable, which is uh, 4,100 miles across the Atlantic. <clears throat> Not just them. There was a telecoms infrastructure company... Telzius, Telzius, T-E-L-X-I-U-S. And basically, it is the highest capacity subsea cable to ever cross the Atlantic. And it's gone a little bit further south than most cables go. Um, And basically, it's to provide resilience for those living in the U.S. and Europe by safeguarding against natural disasters or major events that might cause disruptions to connections like those seen during Hurricane Sandy. More importantly to Microsoft and Facebook, both companies have large data centers in Virginia. So this means that a lot of traffic that would go to Europe can come to Virginia or back over or whatever. Um, Basically, submarine cables in the Atlantic already carry 55% more traffic than Trans-Pacific routes and 40% more data than between U.S. and Latin America. There's no question that demand for data across the Atlantic will continue to increase. And for most of the route, the cable, which is eight pairs of fiber optic cables enclosed by copper, lays on the ocean floor, and some parts are buried to protect it from shipping traffic, usually in areas closer to shore. And so it, it, it comes out in at Virginia Beach on the U.S., and in northern Spain, right near France, on the other side. Boy, that's a it's an impressive feat. I mean, I, I know we have you know we already have uh, transatlantic cables, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, mm-hmm. But like, mm-hmm. just the concept of things on the ocean floor, being able to yeah. lay that and then yeah. get the kind of reliability. Sure, we do have some issues with it, but it's now, impressive that we can do it at all. Now they have been doing this for decades. Yes. Uh, the first, trans, the first trans-Pacific cable, uh, now the reason I know this is I knew someone who was doing a PhD on this or a master's. Oh, nice. Uh, trans-Pacific cable uh, went, uh, the original Transpac cable went all the way to New Zealand, sort of like went, went from the West Coast out to a couple of islands, eventually landed at Honolulu, landed at Fiji. Uh, then came a little bit further and then split off and one went to Australia, New Zealand, 
And that was all laid by sailing ship. Really? Wow. Sailing ship. Sailing ships. That's, that's impressive. I, I, I think it was. I think it was. Well, we'll I hear back if anyone knows different, I'm sure. It, it was old. This was in the 1800s, I think, this cable was laid. Uh, it was telegraph only, to <laughs> sure. put it that way. Yeah, telegraph only. It was only. not telephone. <laughs> it was telegraph only. And then eventually it wound up being repurposed for measuring Earth magnetic currents or something like that. And one of the professors who was working on this suddenly transferred to Alaska, working on some military project, and then was found mysteriously murdered in his hotel room in Mexico. Yikes. Okay. Well, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, different cable, but just random trivia. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Well, that's fascinating. And it'll be interesting to see. Um, It clearly Microsoft Facebook have a lot of vested interest in be able to have these kinds of really good, um, you know, data links and be able to you have people across the world use their services. So it's interesting to see development, but uh, more and more data all the time. That's what we're doing as a society. It's uh, fascinating to watch. I wonder if this is active now. No, it's not. The cable will be operational by early 2018. Okay. So they've completed the cable, but it's it's a uh, it's another few months away from being operational. Yeah. It'd be interesting. It'd be nice to know, like, what who ends up actually getting, you know, who gets leases on this cable, what what data, oh, yeah. what partnerships are yeah. involved in terms of yeah. both yeah. ends. But yeah. I'm not sure we'll be able to it, easily get that. Now, uh, did we talk about the yeah 160 te- terabytes per second? Terabits, I believe. Correct. Terabits. Now, I'm, I'm sure they're not going to light up all eight cables at once. Right, yeah. Right, generally. They're going to bring them on as they need them in. Hmm. Now, from what I understand, the cable would not just consist of fiber optics because they have to have power along the way. Every once in a while, they have a repeater. Right, yeah. Which boosts the signal. So they have to have some some conductive ability throughout the cable yeah. as well. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Well, a fascinating little uh, little tidbit of slice of information from that sector of engineering that we don't often see here above the waves. If you, no matter where you live, whether that be in New Zealand or Europe, uh, you can find more of this here show over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can find a whole bunch of TechSnap archives, previous generation of this here show. Plus, there's like the contact page, the live page where you can view live, join the IRC room. There's a ton of great other ways to get in touch. Um, There's also techsnap.reddit.com. He is at techsnap underscore Dan. I'm at Wes Payne. Do you have anything you'd like to leave the audience with before we get out of here? Nope. Nope. Make sure your stuff is patched. Get your stuff patched. uh, Buy some tapes, maybe, and uh, do your backups. And thank you for watching TechSnap. We'll see you next week.